Chapter One: Power from on High. Please permit me, through your columns, to correct a misapprehension of some of the members of the late council at Oberlin in the brief remarks which I made to them, first on Saturday morning and afterwards on the Lord's Day. In my first remarks to them, I called attention to the mission of the church to disciple all nations, as recorded by Matthew and Luke, and stated that this commission was given by Christ to the whole church, and that every member of the church is under obligation to make it his life work to convert the world. I then raised two inquiries: one, what do we need to secure success in this great work? Two, how can we get it? Answer one: We need the endowment of power from on high. Christ had previously informed the disciples that without Him they could do nothing. When He gave them the commission to convert the world, He added, "But tarry in Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence." Lo, I send upon you the promise of my Father. This baptism of the Holy Ghost, this thing promised by the Father, this endowment of power from on high, Christ has expressly informed us, is the indispensable condition of performing the work which He has set before us. Two, how shall we get it? Christ expressly promised it to the whole church. And to every individual whose duty it is to labor for the conversion of the world, he admonished the first disciples not to undertake the work until they had received this endowment of power from on high. Both the promise and the admonition apply equally to all Christians of every age and nation. No one has at any time any right to expect success unless he first secures this endowment of power from on high. The example of the first disciples teaches us how to secure this endowment. They first consecrated themselves to His work and continued in prayer and supplication until the Holy Ghost fell upon them on the day of Pentecost, and they received the promised endowment of power from on high. This then is the way to get it. The council desired me to say more upon this subject. Consequently, on the Lord's day, I took it for my text, the assertion of Christ, that the Father is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than we are to give good gifts to our children. One, I said the text informs us that it is infinitely easy to obtain the Holy Spirit or this endowment of power from the Father. Two, that this is made a constant subject of prayer. Everybody prays for this at all times, and yet, with all this intercession, how few comparatively are really endued with the spirit of power from on high? This want is not met. The want of power is a subject of constant complaint. Christ says, "Every one that asketh receiveth," but there is certainly a great gulf between the asking and receiving. That is a great stumbling block to many. How then is this discrepancy to be explained? I then proceeded to show why this endowment is not received. I said, one, we are not willing, upon the whole, to have what we desire and ask. Two, 
God has expressly informed us that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, he will not hear us. But the petitioner is often self-indulgent. This is iniquity and God will not hear him. 3. He is uncharitable. 4. Censorious. 5. Self-dependent. 6. Resists conviction of sin. 7. Refuses to confess to all the parties concerned. 8. Refuses to make restitution to injured parties. 9. He is prejudiced and uncandid. 10. He is resentful. 11. Has a revengeful spirit. 12. Has a worldly ambition. 13. He has committed himself on some point and become dishonest and neglects and rejects further light. 14. He is denominationally selfish. 15. Selfish for his own congregation. 16. He resists the teachings of the Holy Spirit. 17. He grieves the Holy Spirit by dissension. 18. He quenches the Spirit by persisting in justifying wrong. 19. He grieves him by a want of watchfulness. 20. He resists him by indulging evil tempers. 21. Also by dishonesties in business. 22. Also by indolence and impatience in waiting upon the Lord. 23. By many forms of selfishness. 24. By negligence in business, in study, in prayer. 25. By undertaking too much business, too much study and too little prayer. 26. By a want of entire consecration. 27. Last and greatest. By unbelief. He prays for this endowment without expecting to receive it. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. This then is the greatest sin of all. What an insult. What a blasphemy to accuse God of lying. I was obliged to conclude that these and other forms of indulged sin explain why so little is received while so much is asked. I said I had not time to present the other side. Some of the brethren afterward inquired, What is the other side? The other side presents the certainty that we shall receive the promised endowment of power from on high and be successful in winning souls if we ask and fulfill the plainly revealed conditions of prevailing prayer. Observe what I said upon the Lord's day was upon the same subject, and in addition to what I had previously said, the misapprehension alluded to was this, if we first get rid of all these forms of sin which prevent our receiving this endowment, have we not already obtained the blessing? What more do we need? Answer there is a great difference between the peace and the power of the Holy Spirit in the soul. The disciples were Christians before the day of Pentecost and as such had a measure of the Holy Spirit. They must have had the peace of sins forgiven and of a justified state 
but yet they had not the endowment of power necessary to the accomplishment of the work assigned them. They had the peace which Christ had given them, but not the power which he had promised. This may be true of all Christians, and right here is, I think, the greatest mistake of the church and of the ministry. They rest in conversion and do not seek until they obtain this endowment of power from on high. Hence so many professors have no power with either God or man. They prevail with neither. They cling to a hope in Christ and even enter the ministry overlooking the admonition to wait until they are endued with power from on high. But let anyone bring all the tithes and offerings into God's treasury let him lay all upon the altar and prove God herewith and he shall find that God will open the windows of heaven and pour him out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Chapter 2 What is it? The apostles and brethren on the day of Pentecost received it. What did they receive? What power did they exercise after that event? They received a powerful baptism of the Holy Ghost, a vast increase of divine illumination. This baptism imparted a great diversity of gifts that were used for the accomplishment of their work. It manifestly included the following things, the power of a holy life, the power of a self-sacrificing life. The manifestation of these must have had great influence with those to whom they proclaimed the gospel the power of a cross-bearing life, the power of great meekness, which this baptism enabled them everywhere to exhibit, the power of a loving enthusiasm in proclaiming the gospel, the power of teaching, the power of a loving and living faith, the gift of tongues, an increase of power to work miracles, the gift of inspiration, or the revelation of many truths before unrecognized by them, the power of moral courage to proclaim the gospel and do the bidding of Christ, whatever it cost them. In their circumstances all these endowments were essential to their success, but neither separately nor altogether did they constitute that power from on high which Christ promised and which they manifestly received. That which they manifestly received as the supreme, crowning and all-important means of success was the power to prevail with both God and man, the power to fasten saving impressions upon the minds of men. This last was doubtless the thing which they understood Christ to promise. He had commissioned the church to convert the world to him. All that I have named above were only means which could never secure the end unless they were vitalized and made effectual by the power of God. The apostles doubtless understood this and laying themselves and their all upon the altar they besieged a throne of grace in the spirit of entire consecration to their work. They did in fact receive the gifts before mentioned but supremely and principally this power to savingly impress men. It was manifested right upon the spot. They began to address the multitude, and wonderful to tell, three thousand were converted the same hour. But observe, here was no new power manifested by them upon this occasion, save the gift of tongues. 
They wrought no miracle at that time and used these tongues simply as the means of making themselves understood. Let it be noted that they had not had time to exhibit any other gifts of the Spirit which have been above named. They had not at that time the advantage of exhibiting a holy life or any of the powerful graces and gifts of the Spirit. What was said on the occasion as recorded in the Gospel could not have made the impression that it did had it not been uttered by them with a new power to make a saving impression upon the people. This power was not the power of inspiration, for they only declared certain facts of their own knowledge. It was not the power of human learning and culture, for they had but little. It was not the power of human eloquence, for there appears to have been but little of it. God was speaking in and through them. It was a power from on high, God in them making a saving impression upon those to whom they spoke. This power to savingly impress abode with and upon them. It was doubtless the great and main thing promised by Christ and received by the apostles and primitive Christians. It has existed to a greater or less extent in the church ever since. It is a mysterious fact often manifested in a most surprising manner. Sometimes a single sentence, a word, a gesture or even a look will convey this power in an overcoming manner. To the honor of God alone I will say a little of my own experience in this matter. I was powerfully converted on the morning of the 10th of October. In the evening of the same day and on the morning of the following day I received overwhelming baptisms of the Holy Ghost that went through me as it seemed to me, body and soul. I immediately found myself endued with such power from on high that a few words dropped here and there to individuals were the means of their immediate conversion. My words seemed to fasten like barbed arrows in the souls of men. They cut like a sword. They broke the heart like a hammer. Multitudes can attest to this. Oftentimes a word dropped without my remembering it would fasten conviction and often result in almost immediate conversion. Sometimes I would find myself in a great measure empty of this power. I would go out and visit and find that I made no saving impression. I would exhort and pray with the same result. I would then set apart a day for private fasting and prayer, fearing that this power had departed from me, and would inquire anxiously after the reason of this apparent emptiness. After humbling myself and crying out for help, the power would return upon me with all its freshness. This has been the experience of my life. I could fill a volume with the history of my own experience and observation with respect to this power from on high. It is a fact of consciousness and of observation, but a great mystery. I have said that sometimes a look has in it the power of God. I have often witnessed this. Let the following fact illustrate it. I once preached for the first time in a manufacturing village. The next morning I went into a manufacturing establishment to view its operations. As I passed into the weaving department, I beheld a great company of young women, some of whom I observed were looking at me and then at each other in a manner that indicated a trifling spirit and that they knew me. I, however, knew none of them. 
As I approached nearer to those who had recognized me, they seemed to increase in their manifestations of lightness of mind. Their levity made a peculiar impression on me, and I felt it to my very heart. I stopped short and looked at them. I know not how, as my whole mind was absorbed with the sense of their guilt and danger. As I settled my countenance upon them, I observed that one of them became very much agitated. A thread broke. She attempted to mend it, but her hands trembled in such a manner that she could not do it. I immediately observed that the sensation was spreading and had become universal among that class of triflers. I looked steadily at them until one after another gave up and paid no more attention to their looms. They fell on their knees and the influence spread throughout the whole room. I had not spoken a word and the noise of the looms would have prevented my being heard if I had. In a few minutes all work was abandoned and tears and lamentations filled the room. At this moment the owner of the factory, who was himself an unconverted man, came in, accompanied I believe by the superintendent who was a professed Christian. When the owner saw the state of things he said to the superintendent, Stop the mill! What he saw seemed to pierce him to the heart. It is more important, he hurriedly remarked, that these souls should be saved than that this mill should run. As soon as the noise of the machinery had ceased, the owner inquired, What shall we do? We must have a place to meet where we can receive instruction. The superintendent replied, The mule room will do. The mules were run out of the way and all of the hands were notified and assembled in that room. We had a marvelous meeting. I prayed with them and gave them such instructions as at the time they could bear. The word was with power. Many expressed hope that day, and within a few days, as I was informed, nearly every hand in that great establishment, together with the owner, had hope in Christ. This power is a great marvel. I have many times seen people unable to endure the word, the most simple and ordinary statements would cut men off from their seats like a sword, would take away their bodily strength and render them almost as helpless as dead men. Several times it has been true in my experience that I could not raise my voice or say anything in prayer or exhortation except in the mildest manner, without wholly overcoming those that were present. This was not because I was preaching terror to the people, but the sweetest sounds of the gospel would overcome them. This power seems sometimes to pervade the atmosphere of one who is highly charged with it. Many times great numbers of persons in a community will be clothed with this power, when the very atmosphere of the whole place seems to be charged with the life of God. Strangers coming into it and passing through the place will be instantly smitten with conviction of sin, and in many instances converted to Christ. When Christians humble themselves and consecrate their all afresh to Christ and ask for this power, they will often receive such a baptism that they will be instrumental in converting more souls in one day than in all their lifetime before. While Christians remain humble enough to retain this power, the work of conversion will go on till whole communities and regions of country are converted to Christ. The same is true of ministers. But this article is long enough.
If you will allow me, I have more to say upon this subject. Chapter 3 The Endowment of the Spirit Since the publication in the Independent of my article on The Power from on High, I have been confined with protracted illness. In the meantime, I have received numerous letters of inquiry upon that subject. They relate mostly to three particular points of inquiry. 1. They request further illustrations of the exhibition of this power. 2. They inquire who have a right to expect this endowment. 3. How or upon what conditions can it be obtained? I am unable to answer these inquiries by letters to individuals. With your leave, I propose, if my health continues to improve, to reply to them in several short articles through your columns. In the present number, I will now relate another exhibition of this power from on high, as witnessed by myself. Soon after I was licensed to preach, I went into a region of country where I was an entire stranger. I went there at the request of a female missionary society located in Oneida County, New York. Early in May, I think, I visited the town of Antwerp in the northern part of Jefferson County. I stopped at the village hotel and there learned that there were no religious meetings held in that town at the time. They had a brick meeting house, but it was locked up. By personal efforts, I got a few people to attend in the parlor of a Christian lady in the place and preached to them on the evening after my arrival. As I passed round the village, I was shocked with the horrible profanity that I heard among the men wherever I went. I obtained leave to preach in the schoolhouse on the next Sabbath, but before the Sabbath arrived I was much discouraged and almost terrified in view of the state of society which I witnessed. On Saturday the Lord applied with power to my heart the following words, addressed by the Lord Jesus to Paul, Acts 18, 9 and 10. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee for I have much people in this city. This completely subdued my fears, but my heart was loaded with agony for the people. On Sunday morning I arose early and retired to a grove not far from the village to pour out my heart before God for a blessing on the labors of the day. I could not express the agony of my soul in words, but struggled with much groaning and, I believe, with many tears for an hour or two without getting relief. I returned to my room in the hotel, but almost immediately came back to the grove. This I did thrice. The last time I got complete relief, just as it was time to go to meeting. I went to the schoolhouse and found it filled to its utmost capacity. I took out my little pocket Bible and read for my text. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I exhibited the love of God as contrasted with the manner in which he was treated by those for whom he gave up his son. I charged home their profanity upon them and, as I recognized among my hearers several whose profanity I had particularly noticed, in the fullness of my heart and the gushing of my tears, I pointed to them and said, I heard these men call upon God to damn their fellows. The word took powerful effect. 
Nobody seemed offended, but almost everybody greatly melted. At the close of the service, the amiable landlord, Mr. Copeland, rose and said that he would open the meeting house in the afternoon. He did so. The meeting house was full, and, as in the morning, the word took powerful effect. Thus a powerful revival commenced in the village, which soon after spread in every direction. I think it was on the second Sabbath after this, when I came out of the pulpit in the afternoon, an aged man approached and said to me, Can you not come and preach in our neighborhood? We have never had any religious meeting there. I inquired the direction and the distance, and appointed to preach there the next afternoon, Monday at five o'clock in their schoolhouse. I had preached three times in the village and attended two prayer meetings on the Lord's Day and on Monday I went on foot to fulfill this appointment. The weather was warm that day and before I arrived there I felt almost too faint to walk and greatly discouraged in my mind. I sat down in the shade by the wayside and felt as if I was too faint to reach there and if I did, too much discouraged to open my mouth to the people. When I arrived I found the house full and immediately commenced the service by reading a hymn. They attempted to sing but the horrible discord agonized me beyond expression. I leaned forward, put my elbows upon my knees and my hands over my ears and shook my head with all to shut out the discord which even then I could barely endure. As soon as they ceased to sing I cast myself down upon my knees almost in a state of desperation. The Lord opened the windows of heaven upon me and gave me great enlargement and power in prayer. Up to this moment I had no idea what text I should use on the occasion. As I rose from my knees the Lord gave me this, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. I told the people as nearly as I could recollect where they would find it and went on to tell them of the destruction of Sodom. I gave them an outline of the history of Abraham and Lot, and their relations to each other, of Abraham praying for Sodom, and of Lot as the only pious man that was found in the city. While I was doing this I was struck with the fact that the people looked exceedingly angry about me. Many countenances appeared very threatening, and some of the men near me looked as if they were about to strike me. This I could not understand, as I was only giving them, with great liberty of spirit, some interesting sketches of Bible history. As soon as I had completed the historical sketch I turned upon them, and said that I had understood they had never had any religious meeting in that neighborhood, and applying that fact I thrust at them with the sword of the Spirit with all my might. From this moment the solemnity increased with great rapidity, in a few moments there seemed to fall upon the congregation an instantaneous shock. I cannot describe the sensation that I felt, nor that which was apparent in the congregation, but the word seemed to literally cut like a sword. The power from on high came down upon them in such a torrent that they fell from their seats in every direction. In less than a minute nearly the whole congregation were either down on their knees or on their faces, or in some position prostrate before God. Everyone was crying or groaning for mercy upon his own soul. They paid no further attention to me or to my preaching.
I tried to get their attention, but I could not. I observed the aged man who had invited me there still retaining his seat near the center of the house. He was staring round him with a look of unutterable astonishment. Pointing to him, I cried at the top of my voice, Can't you pray? He knelt down and roared out a short prayer, about as loud as he could holler, but they paid no attention to him. After looking round for a few moments, I knelt down and put my hand on the head of a young man who was kneeling at my feet and engaged in prayer for mercy on his soul. I got his attention and preached Jesus in his ear. In a few moments he seized Jesus by faith and then broke out in prayer for those around him. I then turned to another in the same way and with the same result, and then another and another, till I know not how many had laid hold of Christ and were full of prayer for others. After continuing in this way till nearly sunset, I was obliged to commit the meeting to the charge of the old gentleman who had invited me and go to fulfill an appointment in another place for the evening. In the afternoon of the next day, I was sent for to go down to this place, as they had not been able to break up the meeting. They had been obliged to leave the schoolhouse to give place to the school, but had removed to a private house nearby, where I found a number of persons still too anxious and too much loaded down with conviction to go to their homes. These were soon subdued by the word of God, and I believe all obtained a hope before they went home. Observe, I was a total stranger in that place, had never seen or heard of it, until as I have related. But here, at my second visit, I learned that the place was called Sodom, by reason of its wickedness, and the old man who invited me was called Lot, because he was the only professor of religion in the place. After this manner the revival broke out in this neighborhood. I have not been in that neighborhood for many years. But in 1956, I think, while laboring in Syracuse, New York, I was introduced to a minister of Christ from St. Lawrence County by the name of Cross. He said to me, Mr. Finney, you don't know me, but do you remember preaching in a place called Sodom? I said, I shall never forget it. He replied, I was then a young man and was converted at that meeting. He is still living, a pastor in one of the churches in that county, and is the father of the principal of our preparatory department. Those who have lived in that region can testify of the permanent results of that blessed revival. I can only give in words a feeble description of that wonderful manifestation of power from on high, attending the preaching of the word. Chapter 4 Endowment of Power from on High In this article... I propose to consider the conditions upon which this endowment of power can be obtained. Let us borrow a little light from the scriptures. I will not cumber your paper with quotations from the Bible, but simply state a few facts that will readily be recognized by readers of the scriptures. If the readers of this article will read in the last chapter of Matthew and of Luke, the commission which Christ gave to his disciples, and in connection read the first and second chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, they will be prepared to appreciate what I have to say in this article. First, the disciples had already been converted to Christ, 
and their faith had been confirmed by his resurrection. But let me say that conversion to Christ is not to be confounded with a great consecration to the world's conversion. In conversion the soul has to do directly and personally with Christ. It yields up its prejudices, its antagonisms, its self-righteousness, its unbelief, its selfishness, accepts him, trusts him and supremely loves him. All this the disciples had, more or less, distinctly done. But as yet they had received no definite commission and no particular endowment of power to fulfill a commission. Second, but when Christ had dispelled their great bewilderment resulting from his crucifixion and confirmed their faith by repeated interviews with them, he gave them their great commission to win all nations to himself. But he admonished them to tarry at Jerusalem till they were endued with power from on high, which he said they should receive not many days hence. Now observe what they did. They assembled the men and women for prayer. They accepted the commission and doubtless came to an understanding of the nature of the commission and the necessity of the spiritual endowment which Christ had promised. As they continued day after day in prayer and conference, they no doubt came to accept more and more the difficulties that would beset them and to feel more and more their inadequacy to the task. A consideration of the circumstances and results leads to the conclusion that they one and all consecrated themselves with all they had to the conversion of the world as their life work. They must have renounced utterly the idea of living to themselves in any form and devoted themselves with all their powers to the work set before them. This consecration of themselves to the work, this self-renunciation, this dying to all that the world could offer them must in the order of nature have preceded their intelligent seeking of the promised endowment of power from on high. They then continued with one accord in prayer for the promised baptism of the Spirit, which baptism included all that was essential to their success. Observe, they had a work set before them, they had a promise of power to perform it, they were admonished to wait until the promise was fulfilled. How did they wait? not in listlessness and inactivity, not in making preparations by study and otherwise to get along without it, not by going about their business and offering an occasional prayer that the promise might be fulfilled, but they continued in prayer and persisted in their suit till the answer came. They understood that it was to be a baptism of the Holy Ghost. They understood that it was to be received from Christ. They prayed in faith, they held on with the firmest expectation until the endowment came. Now let these facts instruct us as to the conditions of receiving this endowment of power. We as Christians have the same commission to fulfill. As truly as they did, we need an endowment of power from on high. Of course the same injunction to wait upon God till we receive it is given to us. We have the same promise that they had. Now let us take substantially and in spirit the same course that they did. They were Christians and had a measure of the Spirit to lead them in prayer and in consecration. So have we. Every Christian possesses a measure of the Spirit of Christ. 
enough of the Holy Spirit to lead us to true consecration and inspire us with the faith that is essential to our prevalence in prayer. Let us then not grieve or resist him, but accept the commission, fully consecrate ourselves with all we have to the saving of souls as our great and our only life work. Let us get on the altar with all we have and are and lie there and persist in prayer until we receive the endowment. Now observe, conversion to Christ is not to be confounded with the acceptance of this commission to convert the world. The first is a personal transaction between the soul and Christ relating to its own salvation. The second is the soul's acceptance of the service in which Christ proposes to employ it. Christ does not require us to make brick without straw. To whom he gives the commission, he also gives the admonition and the promise. If the commission is heartily accepted, if the promise is believed, if the admonition to wait upon the Lord till our strength is renewed be complied with, we shall receive the endowment. It is of the final importance that all Christians should understand that this commission to convert the world is given to them by Christ individually. Everyone has the great responsibility devolved upon him or her to win as many souls as possible to Christ. This is the great privilege and the great duty of all the disciples of Christ. There are a great many departments in this work but in every department we may and ought to possess this power that whether we preach or pray or write or print or trade or travel take care of children or administer the government of the state or whatever we do our whole life and influence should be permeated with this power Christ says if any man believe in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water that is, a Christian influence, having in it the element of power to impress the truth of Christ upon the hearts of men, shall proceed from him. The great want of the church at present is, first, the realizing conviction that this commission to convert the world is given to each of Christ's disciples as his life work. I fear I must say that the great mass of professing Christians seem never to have been impressed with this truth. The work of saving souls they leave to ministers. The second great want is a realizing conviction of the necessity of this endowment of power upon every individual soul. Many professors of religion suppose it belongs especially and only to such as are called to preach the gospel as a life work. They fail to realize that all are called to preach the gospel that the whole life of every Christian is to be a proclamation of the glad tidings. A third want is an earnest faith in the promise of this endowment. A vast many professors of religion and even ministers seem to doubt whether this promise is to the whole church and to every Christian. Consequently they have no faith to lay hold of it. If it does not belong to all, they don't know to whom it does belong. Of course they cannot lay hold of the promise by faith. A fourth want is that persistence in waiting upon God for it that is enjoined in the scriptures. They faint before they have prevailed and hence the endowment is not received. 
multitude seem to satisfy themselves with the hope of eternal life for themselves, they never get ready to dismiss the question of their own salvation, leaving that as settled with Christ. They don't get ready to accept the great commission to work for the salvation of others, because their faith is so weak that they do not steadily leave the question of their own salvation in the hands of Christ. And even some ministers of the gospel I find are in the same condition and halting in the same way, unable to give themselves wholly to the work of saving others because in a measure unsettled about their own salvation. It is amazing to witness the extent to which the church has practically lost sight of the necessity of this endowment of power. Much is said of our dependence upon the Holy Spirit by almost everybody. But how little is this dependence realized? Christians and even ministers go to work without it. I mourn to be obliged to say that the ranks of the ministry seem to be filling up with those who do not possess it. May the Lord have mercy upon us. Will this last remark be thought uncharitable? If so, let the report of the Home Missionary Society, for example, be heard upon this subject. Surely something is wrong. An average of five souls won to Christ by each missionary of that society in a year's toil certainly indicates a most alarming weakness in the ministry. Have all or even a majority of these ministers been endued with the power which Christ promised? If not, why not? But if they have, is this all that Christ intended by his promise? In a former article I have said that the reception of this endowment of power is instantaneous. I do not mean to assert that in every instance the recipient was aware of the precise time at which the power commenced to work mightily with him. It may have commenced like a dew and increased to a shower. I have alluded to the report of the Home Missionary Society. Not that I suppose that the brethren employed by the society are exceptionally weak in faith and power as laborers for God. On the contrary, from my acquaintance with some of them, I regard them as amongst our most devoted and self-denying laborers in the cause of God. This fact illustrates the alarming weakness that pervades every branch of the church, both clergy and laity. Are we not weak? Are we not criminally weak? It has been suggested that by writing thus I should offend the ministry of the church. I cannot believe that the statement of so palpable a fact will be regarded as an offence. The fact is, there is something sadly defective in the education of the ministry and of the church. The ministry is weak because the church is weak, and then, again, the church is kept weak by the weakness of the ministry. Oh, for a conviction of the necessity of this endowment of power and faith in the promise of Christ. Chapter 5 Is it a hard saying? In a former article I said that the want of an endowment of power from on high should be deemed a disqualification for a pastor, a deacon or elder, a Sabbath school superintendent, a professor in a Christian college, and especially for a professor in a theological seminary. Is this a hard saying? Is this an uncharitable saying? Is it unjust? Is it unreasonable? Is it unscriptural? 
Suppose any one of the apostles or those present on the day of Pentecost had failed through apathy, selfishness, unbelief, indolence or ignorance to obtain this endowment of power. Would it have been uncharitable, unjust, unreasonable or unscriptural to have accounted him disqualified for the work which Christ had appointed them? Christ had expressly informed them that without this endowment they could do nothing. He had expressly enjoined it upon them not to attempt it in their own strength but to tarry at Jerusalem until they had received the necessary power from on high. He had also promised that if they tarried in the sense which he intended they should receive it not many days hence. They evidently understood him to enjoin upon them to tarry in the sense of a constant waiting upon him in prayer and supplication for the blessing. Now suppose that any one of them had stayed away and attended to his own business and waited for the sovereignty of God to confer this power. He of course would have been disqualified for the work and if his fellow Christians who had obtained this power had deemed him so would it have been uncharitable, unreasonable, unscriptural? And is it not true of all to whom the command to disciple the world is given and to whom the promise of this power is made if through any shortcoming or fault of theirs they fail to obtain this gift that they are in fact disqualified for the work and especially for any official station? Are they not in fact disqualified for leadership in the sacramental host? Are they qualified for teachers of those who are to do the work? If it is a fact that they do lack this power, however this defect is to be accounted for, it is also a fact that they are not qualified for teachers of God's people, and if they are seen to be disqualified because they lack this power, it must be reasonable and right and scriptural so to deem them, and so to speak of them, and so to treat them. Who has a right to complain? Surely they have not. Shall the church of God be burdened with teachers and leaders who lack this fundamental qualification when their failing to possess it must be their own fault? The manifest apathy, indolence, ignorance and unbelief that exist upon this subject are truly amazing. They are inexcusable. They must be highly criminal. With such a command to convert the world ringing in our ears with such an injunction to wait in constant wrestling prayer till we receive the power, with such a promise made by such a Saviour held out to us of all the help we need from Christ himself, what excuse can we offer for being powerless in this great work? What an awful responsibility rests upon us, upon the whole church, upon every Christian. One might ask, how is apathy, how is indolence, how is the common fatal neglect possible under such circumstances? If any of the primitive Christians to whom this commandment was given had failed to receive this power, should we not think them greatly to blame? If such default had been sin in them, how much more in us with all the light of history and of fact blazing upon us, which they had not received? Some ministers and many Christians treat this matter as if it were to be left to the sovereignty of God without any persistent effort to obtain this endowment. Did the primitive Christians so understand and treat it? No, indeed. They gave themselves no rest till this baptism of power came upon them. 
I once heard a minister preaching upon the subject of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He treated it as a reality, and when he came to the question of how it was to be obtained, he said truly that it was to be obtained as the apostles obtained it on the day of Pentecost. I was much gratified and listened eagerly to hear him press the obligation on his hearers to give themselves no rest till they had obtained it. But in this I was disappointed, for before he sat down he seemed to relieve the audience from the feeling of obligation to obtain the baptism and left the impression that the matter was to be left to the discretion of God and said what appeared to imply a censure of those that vehemently and persistently urged upon God the fulfillment of the promise. Neither did he hold out to them the certainty of their obtaining the blessing if they fulfilled the conditions. The sermon was in most respects a good one, but I think the audience left without any feeling of encouragement or sense of obligation to seek earnestly the baptism. This is a common fault of the sermons that I hear. There is much that is instructive in them, but they fail to leave either a sense of obligation or a feeling of great encouragement as to the use of means upon the congregation. They are greatly defective in their winding up. They neither leave the conscience under a pressure, nor the whole mind under the stimulus of hope. The doctrine is often good, but the what then is often left out. Many ministers and professors of religion seem to be theorizing, criticizing and endeavoring to justify their neglect of this attainment. So did not the apostles and other Christians. It was not a question which they endeavored to grasp with their intellects before they embraced it with their hearts. It was with them, as it should be with us, a question of faith in a promise. I find many persons endeavoring to grasp with their intellect and settle as a theory questions of pure experience. They are puzzling themselves with endeavors to apprehend with the intellect what is to be received as a conscious experience through faith. There is need of a great reformation in the church on this particular point. The churches should wake up to the facts in the case and take a new position a firm stand in regard to the qualifications of ministers and church officers. They should refuse to settle a man as pastor of those whose qualifications for the office in this respect are not well satisfied. Whatever else he may have to recommend him, if his record does not show that he has this endowment of power to win souls to Christ, they should deem him unqualified. It used to be the custom of churches and I believe in some places is so still, in presenting a call to the pastorate, to certify that, having witnessed the spiritual fruits of his labors, they deem him qualified and called of God to the work of the ministry. Churches should be well satisfied in some way that they call a fruitful minister, and not a dry stalk, that is, a mere intellect, a mere head with little heart, an elegant writer but with no unction, a great logician but of little faith, a fervid imagination it may be, with no Holy Ghost power. The church should hold the theological seminaries to a strict account in this matter, and until they do, I fear the theological seminaries will never wake up to their responsibility. Some years since, one branch of the Scotch church 
was so tried with the want of unction and power in the ministers furnished them by their theological seminary that they passed the resolution that until the seminary reformed in this respect they would not employ ministers that were educated there. This was a necessary, a just, a timely rebuke which I believe had a very salutary effect. A theological seminary ought by all means to be a school not merely for the teaching of doctrine but also and even more especially for the development of Christian experience. To be sure the intellect should be well furnished in those schools but it is immeasurably more important that the pupil should be led to a thorough personal knowledge of Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and to be made conformable to his death. A theological seminary that aims mainly at the culture of the intellect and sends out learned men who lack this endowment of power from on high is a snare and a stumbling block to the church. The seminary should recommend no one to the churches however great his intellectual attainments unless he has this most essential of all attainments the endowment of power from on high. The seminary should be held as incompetent to educate men for the ministry if it is seen that they send out men as ministers who have not this most essential qualification. The churches should inform themselves and look to those seminaries which furnish not merely the best educated but the most unctuous and spiritually powerful ministers. It is amazing that while it is generally admitted that the endowment of power from on high is a reality and essential to ministerial success practically it should be treated by the churches and by the schools as of comparatively little importance. In theory it is admitted to be everything but in practice treated as if it were nothing. From the apostles to the present day it has been seen that men of very little human culture but endued with this power have been highly successful in winning souls to Christ. Whilst men of the greatest learning with all that the schools have done for them have been powerless so far as the proper work of the ministry is concerned. And yet we go on laying ten times more stress on human culture than we do on the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Practically human culture is treated as infinitely more important than the endowment of power from on high. The seminaries are furnished with learned men but often not with men of spiritual power Hence they do not insist upon this endowment of power as indispensable to the work of the ministry. Students are pressed almost beyond endurance with study and the culture of the intellect while scarcely an hour in a day is given to instruction in Christian experience. Indeed, I do not know that so much as one course of lectures on Christian experience is given in the theological seminaries. But religion is an experience, it is a consciousness. Personal intercourse with God is the secret of the whole of it. There is a world of most essential learning in this direction, wholly neglected by the theological seminaries. With them, doctrine, philosophy, theology, church history, sermonizing are everything, and real heart union with God is nothing spiritual power to prevail with God and to prevail with men has but little place in their teaching 
I have often been surprised at the judgment men form in regard to the prospective usefulness of young men preparing for the ministry. Even professors are very apt, I see, to deceive themselves on this subject. If a young man is a good scholar, a fine writer, makes good progress in exegesis and stands high in intellectual culture, they have strong hopes of him even though they must know in many such cases that these young men cannot pray, that they have no unction, no power in prayer, no spirit of wrestling, of agonizing and prevailing with God, yet they are expecting them because of their culture to make their mark in their ministry to be highly useful. For my part, I expect no such thing of this class of men. I have infinitely more hope of the usefulness of a man who at any cost will keep up daily intercourse with God, who is yearning for and struggling after the highest possible spiritual attainment, who will not live without daily prevalence in prayer and being clothed with power from on high. Churches, presbyteries, associations and whoever license young men for their ministry are often very faulty in this respect. They will spend hours in informing themselves of the intellectual culture of the candidates, but scarcely as many minutes in ascertaining their heart culture and what they know of the power of Christ to save from sin, what they know of the power of prayer, and whether and to what extent they are endued with power from on high to win souls to Christ. The whole proceeding on such occasions cannot but leave the impression that human learning is preferred to spiritual unction. Oh, that it were different, and that we were all agreed, practically, now and forever, to hold fast to the promise of Christ, and never think ourselves or anybody else to be fit for the great work of the church, till we have received a rich endowment of power from on high. I beg of my brethren, and especially my younger brethren, not to conceive of these articles as written in the spirit of reproach. I beg the churches, I beg the seminaries, to receive a word of exhortation from an old man who has had some experience in these things and one whose heart mourns and is weighed down in view of the shortcomings of the church, the ministers and the seminaries on this subject. Brethren, I beseech you to more thoroughly consider this matter, to wake up and lay it to heart and rest not till this subject of the endowment of power from on high is brought forward into its proper place and takes that prominent and practical position in view of the whole church that Christ designed it should.